And now, for the show reflecting on classic radio, Hollywood 360, with your host, Carl Amari. He was like a god walking amongst mere mortals. He had a voice that could make a wolverine purr, and suits so fine they made Sinatra look like a hobo. Is this your place, Carl? Yeah, what do you think? Really? It's really awful. But I have a lot of things that are on order. You know, credit trouble. Pay more attention to your schoolwork and listen to the radio. You always listen to the radio. It's different. Our lives are ruined already. The Whistler. tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Hello, everyone. I'm Carl Amari, and this is Hollywood 360, the radio show that presents the best in classic radio. This hour on Hollywood 360, it's the continuation of our salute to Abraham Lincoln and Valentine's Day with the conclusion to the Mercury Theater on the Air, starring Orson Welles as Honest Abe. And then it's part one of a Valentine's Day episode of My Friend Irma, starring Marie Wilson from 1949. With me to help present these radio classics is my co-host, Lisa Wolf. What's up, Lisa? Hi, Carl. What are you going to do for Valentine's Day? Um, well, hopefully I'll just be swooned by my yeah, husband. We'll right. see what happens. He'll be like, will you be my Valentine? And he'll give you some candy, right? No, he doesn't give me candy. I'm not a big, card, maybe. No, I'm not a big card. Really? Candy. What do flowers? You yeah, nah, not jewelry. Really. Well, that's a little big for Valentine's Day. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see what happens. I'll let you know next week. Well, nobody <laughs> loves me, so I, I'm getting nothing for Valentine's I, Day. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a card. All right, I'll, I'll send you some flowers. Thanks, there you buddy. Go. Ah, it makes me feel so much so better. So you're all set. Yeah. All right. Well, last time we began listening to this hour-long episode of Abraham. Lincoln, starring Orson Welles on the Mercury Theater on the Air. We'll have the conclusion on this broadcast, so let's go back to August 15, 1938. Here's another portion of the Mercury Theater on the Air. Gentlemen, the President. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Mr. Morning, President. Mr. President. Good morning. Great news we hear. If we leave things with the Army now to take that course, why, we ought to see through our difficulties. It's an exciting morning, gentlemen. I feel rather excited myself. I find my mind not at its best in excitement. Will you allow me to read you something? It's not long, and it may compose us all. It's uh, Artemis Ward's latest. High-handed outrage at Utica. In the fall of 1856, I showed my show in Utica, a truly great city in the state of New York. People gave me a cordial reception. The press was loud in her praises. One day I was given a description of my beasts and snakes in my usual flowery style, when what was my consternation and show in my cage containing my wax figures of the Lord's Last Supper, I says. But up comes a fellow and seized Judas Iscariot by the feet and drag him out on the ground. He then commenced for to pound him as hard as he could. What under the sun are you about, cried I, says he. What did you bring this pussy Larnimus cuss here for? And he hit the wax figure, another tremendous blow on the head. Says I, you egregious ass, that is a wax figure. Representation of the false apostle. Says he, that's all very well for you to say, but I tell you, old man, that Judas Iscariot can't show himself in Utica with importunity by a downside, with which observation he caved in Judas's head. Young man belonged to one of the first families in Utica. I sued him, and the jury brought in a verdict of arson in the third degree. <laughs> Gentlemen, and... Uh, <laughs> I'd give up office if I could write like that. May we now consider affairs of state? Yes, we may. Mr. Hook says, yes, we may. Thank you. 
Oh, no. Thank Mr. Hook. Uh, McClellan is in pursuit of Lee, I suppose. You suppose a good deal, but for the first time, McClellan has the chance of being in pursuit of Lee, and that's the first sign of their end. If McClellan doesn't take his chance, we'll move Grant down to the job. Grant drinks. Well, then tell me the name of his brand. I'll send him some barrels. He wins victories. Is there any other business? There is. Some weeks ago, I showed you a draft I made. Proclaiming freedom for all slaves. You thought then it was not the time to issue it. I agreed. I think now the moment has come. I will read it. Here it is again. This proclaimed that on the first day of January, in the year of our Lord, 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, Shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. I must oppose the issue of such a proclamation at this moment in the most unqualified terms. I do not quite understand, Mr. President, why you think this the precise moment. Believe me, gentlemen, I have considered this matter with all the earnestness and understanding of which I am capable. But when the New York Tribune urged you to come forward with a clear declaration six months ago, you rebuked them. Because I thought the occasion not the right one. My duty, it has seemed to me, has been to be loyal to a principle and not to betray it by expressing an action at the wrong time. That is why I conceive statesmanship. For long now, I've had two fixed resolves. To preserve the Union and to abolish slavery. How to preserve the Union, I was always clear. And more than two years of bitterness have not dulled my vision. We have fought for the Union... And we are now winning for the Union. With that victory and a vindicated Union will come abolition. I made the promise to myself and to my maker. The rebel army is now driven out and I'm going to fulfill that promise. I do not wish your advice about the main matter, but that I've determined for myself. This is, I say, without intending anything but respect for any one of you. But I beg you to stand with me in this thing. Well, in my opinion, it's altogether too impetuous. One other observation I will make. I know very well that others might in this matter, as in others, do better than I can. And if I was satisfied that the public confidence was more fully possessed by any one of them than by me, and know of any constitutional way in which he could be put in my place, he should have it. I would gladly yield it to him. But though I cannot claim undivided confidence, I do know that all things considered, any other person has more. This I do not know, and moreover this may be, there is no way in which I can have any other man put where I am. I am here. I must do the best I can and bear the responsibility of taking the course which I feel I ought to take. Could this be left over for a short time for consideration? I feel that we should remember that our only public cause at the, at the moment is the preservation of the Union. I entirely agree with Wells. Gentlemen, we cannot escape history. We of this administration will be remembered in spite of ourselves. In giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free... We shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope on earth. I shall sign this proclamation now. Excuse me, gentlemen. We'll be thenceforward and forever free. Gentlemen, I pray for your support. 
Good day. Good day, sir. Good day. Good day, Mr. President. Yes, Mr. President. Hook, will you stay a moment? Yes, Mr. President. Hook, one cannot help hearing things. Make a pardon. Hook, there's a way some people have when a man says a disagreeable thing of asking him to repeat it, hoping to embarrass him. It's often effective, but I'm not easily embarrassed. I said one cannot help hearing things. And I do not understand what you mean, Mr. Bell. Come, Hook, we're alone. Lincoln is a good enough name, and I think you understand. How should I? Then plainly there are intrigues going on. Against the government? No. In it. Against me. Oh, criticism, perhaps. To what end? To better my ways? I presume that might be the purpose. Then why am I not told what it is? I imagine it's natural compunction. Or ambition. What do you mean? Hawk, you've been bitten by the White House bug. You think you ought to be in my place. You're well informed. You cannot imagine why everyone does not see that you ought to be in my place. I what right you say that? Is it not true? You take me unprepared. You have me at a disadvantage. You speak as a very scrupulous man, Hook. You question my honor? As you will. Then I resign. As a protest against... Your suspicion. This false? Very well. I'll be frank. I mistrust your judgment, Mr. Lincoln. In what? Generally, you overemphasize abolition. You don't mean that. You mean that you fear possible public feeling against abolition? It must be persuaded, not forced. Besides, you have, in my opinion, failed in necessary firmness in telling the South what will be the individual penalties of rebellion. This is war. I will not allow it to become a blood feud. But we are fighting treason. We must meet it with severity. We will defeat treason. I will meet it with conciliation. It is a policy of weakness. It is a policy of faith. It is a policy of compassion. Hook. Hook, why do you plague me with these jealousies? Once before, I found a member of my cabinet working behind my back, but he was disinterested and he made amends nobly. But, Hook, you have allowed the burden of these days to sour you. I know it all. I've watched you plotting and plotting for authority, and I, who am a, a lonely man, and sick at heart. So great is the task God has given to my hand, and so few are my days, and my deepest hunger is always for loyalty in my own house. You have withheld it from me. You have done great service in your office, but you have grown envious. Now you resign as you did once before when I came openly to you in friendship. And you think that again I shall flatter you and coax you to stay. Don't do it. Let's take you at your word. I'm content. You shake hands. No. I beg you... To excuse me. Yes, Mr. President? Mr. Hay. Yes, sir. Mr. Hay, I'm rather tired today. Read to me a little. Yes, certainly, sir. The Tempest. You know the passage. Our revels... Now are ended. These, our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers 
the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve, and like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life Ordered that the fourth day of April, 1865, be the day for a general movement of all the land and naval forces of the United States against the insurgent forces. That especially the Army of the Potomac, the Army of Western Virginia, the Army near Munfordville, Kentucky, the Army and Flotilla at Cairo, and a naval force in the Gulf of Mexico, be ready to move on that day. Grant. Yes, Dennis. 7.30, sir. Uh, an hour and a half. Going to be something more from Meade by now, Dennis? Yes, sir. Have you wired the president? Yes, sir. Take these papers to Captain Templeman. Ask Colonel West if the 23rd are in action yet. Tell the cook to send some soup at 10 o'clock. It was cold yesterday. Yes, sir. Give me that map, Maitland. Yes. There's no doubt about it. Unless Meade goes to sleep, it can only be a question of hours. Lee's a great man, but he can't get out of that. Sort of the end, sir? Yes. If Lee surrenders, we can all pack up for home. I guess it'll be splendid, won't it, to be back again? By God, sir, it will. I beg your pardon, sir. Ah, you're quite right, Malins. My boy goes away to school next week. Now I may be able to go down with him, see him settle. Well, Dennis? Colonel West says yes, sir, for the last half hour. The cook says he's sorry, sir. It was a mistake. Tell him to keep his mistakes in the kitchen. I will, sir. Rifles went up this afternoon. Yes, sir. What's that? General Grant. What is it? The president has just arrived, sir. He's in the yard now. All right, I'll come. General Grant? Wasn't expecting you, sir. No, I couldn't keep away. How's it going? Meade sent word an hour and a half ago that Lee was surrounded all but two miles, which was closing in. And not about settling, eh? Unless anything goes wrong in those two miles, sir. I'm expecting a further report from Meade every minute. Would there be more fighting? It'll probably mean fighting through the night, more or less. But Lee must realize it's hopeless by the morning. Dispatch, sir. Yes. General Meade, sir. Thank you. You needn't wait. Yes, they've closed the ring. Meade gives them ten hours. Timed at eight. That's six o'clock in the morning. We must be merciful. Bob Lee's been a gallant fellow. Uh, perhaps you'll look through this list, sir. I hope it's the last we shall have. It's a horrible part of the business, Grant. Any shootings? Uh, one. Damn it, Grant. Why can't you do without it? Oh, no. No, of course not. Who is it? William Scott says. It's rather a hard case. Well, what is it? Just on a heavy march, sir, and volunteered for double guard duty to relieve a sick friend. He was found asleep at his post. I was anxious to spare him, but it couldn't be done. It was a critical place at a gravely critical time. When is it to be? Tomorrow, daybreak, sir. You don't see that it'll do him any good to be shot? Where is he? In the barn, I believe, sir. Thanks. 
Think I'll go see him. I go with you, sir? No, thank you. Oh, who goes there? Just where the boy is held. Oh, uh, uh, yes, Mr. President. Wait outside, William. Yes, sir. Are you William Scott? Yes, sir. Know who I am? Yes, Mr. Lincoln. General tells me you've been court-martialed. Yes, sir. Asleep on guard? Yes, sir. It's a very serious offense. I know, sir. What was it? I couldn't keep awake, sir. It had a long march. Twenty-three miles, sir. Doing double guard? Yes, sir. Who ordered you? Well, sir, I... I offered. Why? Enoch White. He, he was sick, sir. We, we come from the same place. Where's that? Vermont, sir. You live there? Yes, sir. I... We've uh, got a farm down there, sir. Who has? My mother, sir. I, I've got her photographs, sir. I... Does she know about this? Oh, for God's sake, don't, sir. I... There, there. There, my boy. There. You're not going to be shot? Not going to be shot, sir? No, no. Not going to be shot? There, there. I believe you when you tell me you couldn't keep awake. Gonna trust you. Send you back to your regiment. When may I go back, sir? You can go back tomorrow. Expect the fighting be over, though. Is it over yet, sir? Not quite. Oh, please, sir. Let me go back tonight. Let me go back tonight. Very well. You know where General Meade is? No, sir. Is that guard to come here? Your prisoner is discharged. Take him once to General Meade with this. Yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. Lincoln. Mr. Hay. Yes, sir. What's the time, Mr. Hay? Uh, just on half past nine, sir. Well, to sleep here for a little, you'd better shake down too. They'll wake us if any news. Mr. Hay. Mr. Hay. Hello. Uh, what the devil is it? I... Oh, I beg your pardon, Mr. Lincoln. Not at all. Slept well, Hay? Well, I... I feel a little crumpled, sir. <laughs> What's the time? Uh, six o'clock, sir. Listen. I don't hear anything, Mr. Lincoln. That's just it. Guns have stopped. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Hay. Good morning, General. I didn't disturb you last night. The message has come from me. Lee asked for an armistice at four o'clock. An armistice? Yes, sir. An armistice? For four years, life has been but the hope of this moment. 
Strange how simple it is when it comes. Grant, you've served the country very truly. Made my work possible, thank you. And I failed. The fault would not have been yours, sir. I succeeded because you believed in me. Where is Lee? He's coming here. Meade should arrive directly. Where will Lee wait? There's a room ready for him. Will you receive him, sir? Oh, no, no, Grant. No, that's your affair. But to mention no political matters. Be generous. I didn't say that. I have written out the terms I suggest. Here they are, sir. Here. Yes, they do your honor. General Meade is here, sir. Ask him to come here. Yes, sir. I learned a good deal from Robert Lee in early days. He's a better man than most of us. This business will go pretty near his heart, sir. Glad it's to be done by a brave gentleman, Grant. Oh, congratulations, Meade. You've done well. Thank you, sir. Is there much more fighting? Pretty hot for an hour or two. How long will Lee be? Only a few minutes, I should say, sir. You said nothing about terms. No, sir. Did a boy named Scott come to you? Yes, sir. He went into action at once. He was killed. Is there any proclamation to be made, sir, about the rebels? I hope... There will that... be no persecution, no bloody work after this war is over. I'll have nothing of hanging or shooting these men, even the worst of them. Frighten them out of the country, open the gates, let down the bars, scare them off, shoo. Enough lives have been sacrificed. Goodbye, Grant. Port at Washington as soon as you can. Mr. President. Yes? Is it known that you return to Washington tomorrow? I think so. Mr. President, I think you take too many risks. On the way here yesterday, you must have passed half a dozen places where a well-directed bullet might have taken you off. Assassination of public officers is not an American crime. Goodbye, gentlemen. Come along, hey? Goodbye, Mr. President. Who is with Lee? Only one of his staff, sir. Dennis, let us know directly General Lee comes. Yes, sir. Well, Meade, it's been a big job. Yes, sir. We've had courage and determination. We've had wits to beat a great soldier. I'd say that to any man. But it's Abraham Lincoln, Meade, who has kept us a great cause clean to fight for. Does a man's heart good to know he's given victory to such a man to handle? Have a drink, Meade? No? <clears throat> you know, Meade, there were fools who wanted me to oppose Lincoln for the presidency. Sir! What? General Lee is here, sir. Meade, will General Lee do me the honor of meeting me in here? Where the deuce my hat, Dennis? My sword! Yes, sir. General Lee, sir. Let's take a break from Abraham Lincoln on the Mercury Theater on the Air. More after these words. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. 
And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari. Now back to the Mercury Theater on the Air. Sir, you have given me occasion to be proud of my opponent. I have not spared my strength. I acknowledge its defeat. You have come, General Lee, to ask upon what terms you will accept surrender. Yes. They are simple. I hope you will not find them ungenerous. Here they are. You are magnanimous, sir. May I make one submission? It would be a privilege if I could consider it. You allow our officers to keep their horses, General Grant. That is gracious. Our cavalry troopers' horses also are their own. I understand. They'll be needed on the farms. It shall be done. I thank you. I accept your terms. My friends, I am touched, deeply touched, by this mark of your goodwill. After four dark and difficult years, we have achieved the great purpose for which we set out. I have but little to say at this moment. I claim not to have controlled events, but confess plainly that events have controlled me. But as events have come before me, I've seen them always with one faith. We have preserved the American Union. We have abolished the great wrong. The task of reconciliation setting order where there is now confusion, of bringing about a settlement at once just and merciful, and of directing the life of a reunited country into prosperous channels of goodwill and generosity, will demand all our wisdom, all our loyalty. The proudest hope of my life that I may be of some service in this work. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Friday, April 14th, 1865. In the morning, there was a cabinet meeting at the White House. 
Lincoln was in a happy mood. He told Grant in the cabinet of a dream he had dreamed, which had come to him several times before. In this dream, whenever it came, he was sailing in a ship of a peculiar build, indescribable but always the same, and being borne on it with great speed toward a dark and undefined shore. He had always dreamed this before a victory. He dreamed it before Antietam, before Murfreesboro, before Gettysburg, before Vicksburg. In the afternoon, Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln drove together, and he talked to her of the life they would lead back in Springfield, Illinois, when this presidency was over. That night, Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln went to Ford's Theater. The theater was crowded. Many officers returned from the war were there and eager to see Lincoln. The play was Our American Cousin. A little after eight o'clock, Mrs. Abraham Lincoln entered the official box with her husband and their guests following. Sometime after ten o'clock, at a point in the play which no person present could afterwards remember, a shot was heard in the theater, and Abraham Lincoln fell forward upon the front of the box, unconscious and dying. He was carried to a house near the theater. His sons and closest friends were summoned. A dismal drizzle of rain was falling as the dawn came to Washington after a night of terror. In the streets, men stood in groups discussing the tragedy. Then at 7.30, the tolling of all the church bells in the town and a hush in the streets. Lincoln was dead. devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and the government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth. Tonight, the Columbia Broadcasting System, through its affiliated stations coast to coast, and the network of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, has brought you a production of Abraham Lincoln by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air. The famous play by John Drinkwater was supplemented by many of Lincoln's speeches, excerpts from his debates, proclamations, letters, and accounts of his own private conversations. In the cast this evening were Ray Collins as General Grant, Ed Jerome as General Lee, George Kalouris as Hook, Joseph Holland as Seward, Carl Frank as Scott, Carl Swenson as Hay, William Allen as Dennis, Agnes Moorhead as Mrs. Lincoln, and Orson Welles as Abraham Lincoln. 
Bernard Herman conducted. Dan Seymour speaking. Davidson Taylor supervised for the Columbia Network. Next week at this same time, Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air will bring you Schnitzler's Viennese romance, The Affairs of Anatole. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. And that's the Mercury Theater on the Air from August 15, 1938, with Abraham Lincoln, starring Orson Welles, also in the cast Ray Collins, Agnes Moorhead, and Carl Swenson, as heard on CBS. Before we tune into My Friend Irma, I want to remind all of our listeners that they should be subscribing to Remind Magazine, the greatest magazine for nostalgia lovers coast to coast. Just go to their website, remindmagazine.com. That's remindmagazine.com. It's new and improved. It's over 70 pages, full color, has all kinds of games and puzzles and trivia and movie stars and radio and my article. The current issue has my article on John Archer, who is Ann Archer's dad. He played the shadow on radio for a little while. And so I wrote an article. I actually interviewed him years ago and wrote an article about it. So that's in uh, in this issue of Remind Magazine. But there's all kinds of fun stuff. You have to check it out. Go to Remind Magazine. And subscribe there or pick up a copy at any Walmart or Barnes and Noble stores across the country. So check it out. The greatest magazine in the world, Remind. Do check it out. All right, time now for my friend Irma. This was a situation comedy series set in Manhattan. It came to radio in 1947, lasted all the way to 1954. There were movies. In fact, it was a TV series for a while. Marie Wilson starred as Irma Peterson, dim-witted blonde stenographer, and Kathy Lewis was her very smart roommate, Jane Stacy. Now, Irma's boyfriend, Al, was played by John Brown. He was a deadbeat. Jane's boyfriend was a millionaire banker, Richard Rhinelander, played by Leif Erickson. This was a series created by Cy Howard, who also created Life with Luigi. All right, time now for a Valentine's Day broadcast from February 14, 1949. Here's Marie Wilson in part one of My Friend Irma. Lever Brothers Company presents the Pepsodent Show, My Friend Irma, created by Cy Howard and starring Marie Wilson as Irma with Joan Banks as Jane. Friendship, friendship, just a perfect friendship when other friendships have been forgotten. Theirs will still be hot. My friend Irma. say the human body is 84% water. This can be a dangerous thing. Why do I say that? Well, I live with Irma Peterson, and I'm positive her brain has gone down for the third time. (laughs) You want proof? Well, the other day we were going to see a movie, but Irma insisted we go to the beauty parlor first and take the full treatment. So I said, honey, why such a big fuss over just seeing a movie? And Irma said, Well, we're going to see Command Decision with Clark Gable, Van Johnson, Walter Pigeon, and as long as there are no women in the picture, who knows, they may want to take us out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, what can you expect from a girl who took an extra nickel with her when she saw sorry wrong numbers so she could complete the call? (laughs) And today being Valentine's Day, I am going through an experience I wouldn't wish on a guinea pig. 
Irma is writing Valentine poems she's going to give to Al, and she's testing them out on me. Uh, Jane, uh, how do you like this one? To Al, I'm glad you came my way, for you are cute with a capital K. <laughs> oh, no. Well, then how about this one? To Al, you are priceless, that is true. No wonder they offer a reward for men like you. <laughs> Only in 16 states. Look, Irma, you're not getting any place. Why don't you run down to the corner and buy a card? Oh, but it'll be better if it comes right from my heart. But, honey, you have a talent for saying the wrong thing. The wrong thing? Jen, how can you make a statement like that? Honey, do I have to prove to you you always say the wrong thing? Take yesterday when your boss, Mr. Clyde, said he had to make a court appearance with some briefs. Oh, I didn't think he should go out in public in his shorts. <laughs> I see. And when Richard's mother told you she'd just returned from a week at the Colonial House in Palm Springs, what did you say? Well, it was a natural mistake. When she said Colonial House, I asked her how she got along with Martha Washington. <laughs> now will you go out and buy a card? No, Jane. Al is my only boyfriend, and I think on this romantic day I should write a personal message. The defense rests. Jane... I wonder what Al's going to get me. Well, let's think. One year, he brought you a bag of circus peanuts. Last year, he brought you a bouquet of flowers. Oh, do you think he'll bring me flowers today? No, I don't think so, honey. It would be too much of a coincidence that he'd be called upon to be a pallbearer again this year. <laughs> well, I don't think you should pick on Al. After all, what did Richard give you last Valentine's? Well, he... Took me out to Leon and Eddie's. I think that was a dirty trick. What do you mean? Well, you'd think he'd want to be alone with you and not take you to two other fellows. <laughs> Sweetie, I've told you before, Leon and Eddie's is a nightclub. I don't know why you insist. Come in. It's only me, Professor Kropotkin. <laughs> Hello, Janie and Irma, my two little Valentines. One with a heart of solid gold. The other with a head just as solid. Why, Professor? Excuse me, Jenny, a little holiday sentiment. Well, Professor, I'm glad to see that Valentine's Day still means something to you. Oh, don't let my age fool you, girls. I may be an old man on the outside, but on the inside, when I'm with two pretty girls like you, yippee! Oh, you're cute, Professor. As a matter of fact, I composed a little Valentine poem just for you. Oh, isn't that nice? Let's hear it, Professor. All right. Dear Janie and Irma, if I were married and had two daughters, I'd want them to be like you. But I'm not married and I have no daughters, so please excuse me if once in a while I say, Kitchy, 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 coo. <laughs> oh, Professor, you're priceless. Come in. Hello, girls. Oh, there you are, Professor. Happy Valentine's Day, Miss O'Reilly. Don't Valentine's Day me, you old snake in the grass. <laughs> Girls, just wait till you hear this poem he left under my door. On this day of romantic bliss, I'd like to steal from you a kiss. Why, that's lovely. That's what I thought until I read the rest of it. Listen. <laughs> but then I see that face you're wearing, and I think it's better I should kiss a herring. <laughs> 
Professor, how can you say such things about Mrs. O'Reilly? I was only fishing for a laugh. Well, when I was younger, the men didn't make jokes about me. I was a very popular girl, and I had lots of bows. One of them I'll never forget. He was a balloon pilot. He used to take me up in the balloon and make love to me in the moonlight. <laughs> One time the balloon got out of control and we landed in the bottom of a rock quarry. Oh, it was quite an experience. The County Cork Gazette had the whole story on the front page. Oh, balloon Bottom O'Reilly, they called me. <laughs> Yes, in those days, I was full of life. Miss O'Reilly, I don't think you took out enough insurance. <laughs> Why, you dumb old cluck, you? Oh, gee, look at the time. Al will be here soon. Uh, Jane, I think I'll go down and get him a little gift. If he calls, tell him I won't be long. All right, sweetie. Wait, Elmer, I'll walk down with you. Come in, Professor? Yes, I'll walk in back of you. In this wind, you'll need somebody to catch your eyelashes when they blow off. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, hello, Richard. Gee, it was nice of you to give us today off. What? There's a catch in it? What is it? You want me to meet you for cocktails? Oh, Richard, you make working for you so unpleasant. I'll be there in five minutes. Goodbye. Come in. Oh, hello, Jane. Where's Chicken? Oh, she'll be back in a little while, Al. She wants you to wait. Oh, what are those little heart-shaped packages under your arm? They're two boxes of candy. Boy, is my arm tired. Well, they don't look so heavy. Well, they're not, but you don't know how many baseballs I had to throw to get them. <laughs> one is for chicken, and the one with the blue ribbon is for my mother. I don't see her often. I just write her letters, telling her I'm a big success. I want her to be proud of me. Why, Al, that's very sweet of you. It's nothing compared to what I'll be able to do when my latest deal comes in. Uh, sorry, I can't wait. I've got to meet Richard. Well, you got to listen to this one, Jane. It's a natural. A special invention for married men who lose their money at poker. When the wife goes through his pants pockets in the dark and don't find nothing, and is just about to murder the husband, the wallet lights up and says, thanks for your contribution to the Red Cross. <laughs> uh, Jane, how does it strike you? Like a great, big, dazzling nothing. Uh, your remarks don't faze me, Jane. They laughed at Madame Curie, but she kept right on working. Until the day came when she could give the world one of the greatest inventions of all time. The radium dial watch. <laughs> Look, Al, I've got to get dressed to meet Richard. Okay. We'll leave one box of candy here for chicken and take the other one to my mother. Uh, by the way, Al, how is your mother? Oh, pretty chipper. She expects to be rich someday. She just joined a pyramid club. <laughs> Happy Valentine. Now, where can I put this candy? Oh, we left the wrong box. Al? Al? Al! Oh, Al! Oh, he's gone. Hello, Mom. Alfred, my dear boy. Oh, I knew you wouldn't forget your mother on Valentine's Day. Well, of course not, Mom. Uh, it's good to see you. Wish I could make it more often. Oh, I understand, Alfred. And I read your letters again and again. <sighs> you executives are always tied down to your desks. <laughs> You're still president of U.S. Steel, aren't you? 
Steele? Who, me? Oh, you, Esther. Yeah, of course, absolutely. I knew that Mrs. Johnson needed glasses. Imagine her thinking she saw you standing in the unemployment line. <laughs> That's a good one, Ma. I must tell that to Harry. Harry Truman? Who else? <laughs> oh, Alfred. Oh, I'm so glad you never turned out like your father. I'm so proud of you. Oh, thanks, Mom, and I'm proud of you. Here's a little gift for you. Happy Valentine. Oh, thank you, son. Uh, let me read the card. Yeah, go ahead, Mom. Though you are a little punchy, with those legs I've got to love you, baby. <laughs> I... Alfred, what a terrible thing to say to your mother. Oh, murder. The boxes got mixed up. I better get the chicken before she reads the card in the other box. James! James! Oh, she's not here. Come in. It's only us again. We're just snooping around to see if Al bought you a present. Or if he's hiding like he does on all the other holidays. Oh, I just got in. Oh, there's a package... I know it must be from my Al, my own darling Al. You see, he didn't forget you. Of course not. He loves me. If you could only hear some of the beautiful things he says to me when we sit in the dark on the sofa. Oh, I know how the, what a thrill it is, Irma. Many a man has whispered flattering things in my ear, too, in the dark. <laughs> and when the lights went on, he wanted to kill himself. <laughs> said that like a brave knight you'd like to put me on a horse and leave for some faraway town. <laughs> no, you didn't hear me right. I said from far away you look like a horse and if I were brave some night I'd leave town. <laughs> Please don't quarrel. I'm opening the package. Don't you want to hear what Al says on the car? Go ahead, Irma. I know it must be tender. All right. You are still my first sweetheart, even though you're old and wrinkled. Old and wrinkled? How could they say a thing like that? I must be a mistake. Oh, what is it? Is it his own handwriting? Oh, I wish I were dead. Oh, Irma, darling. Please. Don't try to comfort me. And if he thinks that about me, I, I know he doesn't love me. Irma, what are you doing with your hat and coat? I'm going back to Minnesota, back to the farm. Where the horses love me, and the cows love me, and the goats love me, and the pigs love me. And somewhere among them, I'll find someone to take the place of Al. And that's the first portion of My Friend Irma, Good Valentine's Day show from 1949, starring Marie Wilson. Let's take a break here on Hollywood 360. More after these words. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Next time, it's the conclusion to My Friend Irma from 1949. Then we'll tune into Suspense with a man who went back to save Lincoln. It's a time travel story. You won't want to miss it. That's next time here on Hollywood 360. We'll see you then.